Once, not so long ago, actually, there was a disciple of the Buddha who lived the life of a renunciate alms mendicant and dressed in saffron robes and lived the simple life practiced by those of his order since the time of the Buddha. And it happened that this bhikkhu had come to take on many duties associated with being the abbot and steward of the community where he lived. And he was very diligent and dedicated to his duties. He took them on willingly with a generous heart and did all that was asked of him with care and integrity. But there were a lot of responsibilities and he felt tired at times, especially as the years flowed on one following the other. But there came a time when this bhikkhu was able to arrange to have a full year's leave of absence from his duties. And he determined that he would make really good use of this time. And he resolved that if the conditions came together, he would undertake a pilgrimage and travel to India and visit those holy sites associated with the life of the Buddha. And he had read these words of the Buddha in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. There are four places, Ananda, that a person of faith might visit and look upon with feelings of reverence. What are the four? Here the Tathagata was born. Here the Tathagata became fully enlightened in unsurpassed supreme enlightenment. Here the Tathagata set rolling in motion the unexcelled wheel of the Dhamma. And here the Tathagata passed away into the state of Nibbana in which no element of clinging remains. These Ananda are the four places that a person of faith might visit and look upon with feelings of reverence. And truly there will come to these places Ananda bhikkhus and bhikkhunis and different lay persons. And whoever Ananda should die on such a pilgrimage with their heart established in faith at the breaking up of the body after death will be reborn in a realm of heavenly happiness. And when the bhikkhu's supporters and the supporters of the community heard about his wish and this resolve he made to go on pilgrimage if he could, they, they undertook to bring these conditions about. And so resources were gathered and plans began to be made. And, and in the meantime, the bhikkhu thought about a suitable companion who might accompany him on this journey. And into his thoughts there arose the, the image and feeling of a yogi with whom he'd been associated in the past. And uh, he remembered that this yogi had not only traveled widely in India before and, and was possessed of a great love for that place, but he was also endowed with uh, qualities that the, the monk, the bhikkhu, thought would be suitable for such a journey. A commitment to living ethically and carefully, a resilient um, temperament, ability to respond coolly to unpredictable and wildly changing conditions, and a sense of humor. And so the bhikkhu sent a note to the yogi, and he quoted a verse from the teachings of the Buddha, If for company you cannot find a wise and prudent friend who leads a good life, then like a solitary tusker in the elephant forest, you should go your way alone. 
And so with this simple phrase, he indicated that he considered this yogi to be such a friend, a wise and prudent friend. And so when the yogi received this note and he heard of the monk's intention to go on this pilgrimage, his heart leaped up and was much moved by this invitation. And so he wrote back and said he would be honored and glad to accompany the bhikkhu, both out of friendship and out of duty. And so they began to make plans for their trip and they looked at maps and looked into books and reading accounts of others who had gone on pilgrimage in the past. Now it's the custom and the rule of this uh, bhikkhu's tradition that during the time of the annual rains period, the monsoon period in South and Southeast Asia, that one makes a determination to stay in one place and not wander about. And so um, this is called the rains retreat or the vasa. And uh, so he would, the monk would need to determine to stay in one place. And so when they arrived in India, they began to look for a suitable place to spend the rains. And they traveled far and wide across uh, different regions, across high mountains to hidden valleys deep behind the Himalayas and to uh, across plains and wide river valleys. And they finally came to the location of what was once the great city of Savati. And uh, you've heard heard of that. Uh, some of Carol's stories took place in and near Savati. Patachara's family was from Savati. And this was a favorite place for the Buddha to spend the rains. He spent more periods of the rains in this place than any other place and gave more discourses there than in any other place during his long period of wandering and teaching. And so they thought, oh, this might be a good place to to determine the rains and spend that time. And nowadays, the Savati is no longer there as a, as a living city. And there are a few who even really recall that name. Some followers of the Buddha and historians and scholars who take an interest in these kinds of things and pilgrims. But if you go there, there are signs of the ancient city. The walls of the city are still visible. And within those walls, there are some foundations and uh, various indications that there was once a city there. Much smaller than our cities are these days, you would say a town. But at that time, it was considered to be a great city. And this was the, um, the location of the Jetavana, Jetta's Grove, that was purchased by the uh, merchant uh, disciple of the Buddha, Anattapindaka, that uh, Carol mentioned and maybe others have. This was his home. And the Jetavana, the grove, is a beautiful park outside the city walls there. There's uh, various inside the park. There are some areas that are said to be the ruins of the the huts and uh, different buildings that were constructed for the Buddha and his followers. One of them is said to have been the Buddha's kuti. And uh, it's a place of pilgrimage. There are often offerings there. But these days, the town of Savati is only inhabited by uh, stray dogs and some monkeys And I know these things because I have been there. And I once spent the rains there. And I've been a pilgrim. And I've seen the monkeys and the dogs. 
And such is the way of things that, that that which was once great fades away and disappears. But Savati was the capital city of the, um, the area called Kosala, and it was ruled by King Pasanadi, who was a, a follower, supporter, and disciple of the Buddha. And as I mentioned, it was the home of Anattapindaka. And so the, the two pilgrims, the monk and his, his uh, yogi friend, lay supporter, attendant, they decided this would be a good place to stay for the rains. And so, uh, especially once they visited the beautiful park that is now the, there in the site of the Jetavana, and they explored there. And uh, the beauty and stillness of that place, especially in India, such places these days are rare. And so they determined they would stay, and they took up habitation in a small uh, pilgrimage way station nearby in one of the viharas. And it became their custom that they would rise early in the cool and the darkness, uh, in the pre-dawn hours before it got light at all, or when it was just getting a little pale. And they would make their way to the Jetavana to spend time in meditation in the morning hours. Now, this pilgrim rest house where they uh, slept and uh, was their their place of abiding was also home to several small dogs of uh, questionable heritage and dubious appearance. <laughs> but um, they were of kind disposition and loyal temperament. And, and uh, they were given names by the kind-hearted monk and his companion. Uh, they were named Biscuit, and Cookie, and there were two twins, and they became known as Krispy Kreme and Caramel Kreme. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting, these names were the, also the names of uh, sweet snack foods, um, which I think was a reflection of the dog's fondness for any kind of uh, food offering, and may also reflect the fact that the, the monk and his companion were, were living on very... Um, a simple ra- simple uh, rations they um, ate once a day very simply and and so they often felt hungry also and these dogs also they were uh, given Latin names uh, befitting their dispositions uh, canis obstructus biscuitensis and canis excellensis cookiei <laughs> and so it came to pass that. Uh, In the mornings, the monk and his companion would be accompanied by a loyal entourage of several small dogs, uh, making their way in the semi-darkness along narrow lanes and across uh, between and the narrow paths between the rice paddies uh, to the Jetavana. And eventually, when they came close to the the walls of the park of the Jetavana, they would have to uh, run a gauntlet of ill-mannered monkeys who were lurking there along the wall. And as they walked in, uh, companionable silence and um, just the simple pleasure of that quiet time and uh, their simple um, friends of the dogs and their companionship there, they were often accompanied by sounds of chanting and it would drift across from the village and the different viharas there. And uh, many, many mornings, the chants that they heard were, um, were the words of the great Satipatthana Sutta, the beloved discourse 
that um, we've used as the, the basis for the instructions. And uh, when they heard this and walking through there, it felt so timeless and their hearts were lifted up and gladdened uh, by the sounds of the chanting, the peace of the early morning hours. And they felt this direct and powerful connection to the flow of Dhamma over centuries since the time when the Buddha was living and teaching in that place. And so now uh, Don will uh, very generously offer uh, some chanting, the first portion of that beloved discourse, because our tradition was initially and and really many ways continues to be an oral one. And we um, owe the fact that we have these teachings now is because there are those who have learned these teachings and chanted them and and passed them on from uh, through voice into from a mouth into an ear, and so we want to continue that. And um, Don has very kindly offered to do some chanting, and I would like to dedicate this talk and this chanting to all who have carried these uh, teachings, these um, teachings of inestimable value, through the decades and centuries and years. Uh, through the practice of learning and chants and offering those chants. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa evam me sutang ekang samayang bhagava Kuru su viharati kamma sadamma Namma kuruna nigamo Tatrako pagawa piku amantesi Piku tipadante tite piku Magawato pachaso sumbagawa eta devocha Ekayano ayang bikue mako satanang visutia Sokaparito anasamatikamaya Kadomanasana atakamaya Nyanyasadikamaya Nibbanasasachikiriyaya Yaditang chattaro satipatana Katame chattaro Ida bikue biku kaye kaya nupasi viharati atapi sampajano satima vinaya loke abinjado manasang wetana Tana nupasi viharati atapi sampajano 
Satima wine loke abinjado manasang. Chitte chitanu pasi viharati. Atapi sampajano. Satima wine loke abinjado manasang. Dame su tanna nupasi viharati Atapi sampajano Satima vineya loke abinjado manasang Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you. This path and this practice takes many forms, especially if we stick with it for the long haul. At least it has in my own experience. Sometimes it's just about listening. Letting these words wash over and through one. Letting them land just in that vibration in that direct transmission of Dhamma. And the uh, effect it may have on the heart and the mind in that moment. Sometimes we do our own chanting, giving voice to the words of the Buddha or, or other reflections that calm and collect the mind uplift the mind. Sometimes we train the mind with various meditative techniques, which we have been doing a lot here on this retreat. Sometimes practice takes the form of service. And I've had so many um, powerful um, experiences, times, occasions where I've been blessed to uh, serve as attendants to some very great meditation masters, gotten to know them in a very different way than uh, we usually do. And sometimes it takes the form of what we might call wise reflection, bringing certain thoughts, certain ideas, bringing them into the mind, not for the purpose of, of then dwelling on them or mulling them over or chewing on them, but bringing them in, letting them land in the heart and seeing what follows on and might open from that. One of my colleagues, I think it was Guy in 
uh, one of his talks, maybe the talk before last, shared at least part of the story of uh, Prince Siddhartha, who later became known as the Buddha. And the motivation and inspiration that informed his decision to leave uh, his life and, and go on this quest. And in the story that was shared and the, the sort of story that has come down to us, it's said that this motivation came in the form of um, an encounter with what we, we could think of as the inescapable existential truths of existence. The fact that we are, if we take birth, we are subject to aging, to illness, and eventually to death. And it's said that uh, encountering these realities really shook him up, woke him up. It was a wake-up call. Sometimes there's the story of what are called the four heavenly messengers, an aged person, an ill person, a corpse, a dead body, and a renunciate seeker who um, embodies the possibility of, of understanding, of a way out of suffering in relation to these, these truths that are just part of life. There's a story in one of the texts where the Buddha is talking about a man who has died and has appeared before uh, Lord Yama, the god of death. Good man, didn't you see the first divine messenger that appeared among human beings? No, Lord, I didn't. But good man, didn't you ever see among human beings a person 80, 90, or 100 years of age, frail, bent like a roof bracket, crooked, wobbling as they go along, leaning on a stick, ailing, youth gone, with broken teeth, with gray and scanty hair, or bald, with wrinkled skin and blotched limbs? Yes, Lord, I have seen this. (laughs) Good man, didn't it occur to you, an intelligent and mature person, I too am subject to aging. I am not exempt from aging. Let me now do good by body, speech, and mind. And then King Yama asks him about the second and the third uh, divine heavenly messengers, a a sick person and a, a dead person. Didn't it occur to you, an intelligent and mature person, I too am subject to illness. I too... I'm subject to death. I am not exempt from these things. Let me now do good by body, speech, and mind. You know, we tend to be a lot like the man in the story, at least much of the time. We don't, we don't want to think about these things. You know, he said he'd, he didn't notice that they were heavenly messengers at the time, but he saw them. They didn't land in his mind that way. We see... Life is happening now, old age, death, that's somewhere down the road, although it's looming closer for some of us than others. But we'll deal with it later. But death is not waiting for us somewhere down the road. It's our companion in life. It walks with us every step. Since I started this talk, 106 people have died every minute. It's almost two per second. And that's only human beings. In 50 years, how many of us will still be sitting in meditation here in this hall or anywhere? I certainly won't. Well, the heavenly messengers didn't didn't show up just then for the prince. They're 
they're sitting here listening to me speak this evening. And we could see them easily if we looked. We tend to focus our energy on getting and having possessions, accumulating things and experiences, meditative experiences even, and all the things we use to kind of put together and enhance a sense of who we are. And this orientation can support this turning away from these uh, fundamental truths of life. But because these are part of life, aging, sickness, death, that's, that's part of the deal. True for everyone, it was true for the Buddha. This is a, a fa- I love this teaching. This is called the Jara Sutta, the Discourse on Aging. I've heard that on one occasion, the Blessed One was staying near Savati in the Eastern monastery, the palace of Migara's mother. Now on that occasion, the Blessed One on emerging from seclusion in the late afternoon sat warming his back in the Western sun. Then the Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to the Blessed One, massaged the Blessed One's limbs with his hand and said, it's amazing, Lord. It's astounding how the Blessed One's complexion is no longer so clear and bright. His limbs are flabby and wrinkled. His back bent forward. There's a discernible change in his faculties, the faculty of the eye, of the ear, of the nose, of the tongue, and of the body. That's the way it is, Ananda. (laughs) When young, one is subject to aging. When healthy, one is subject to illness. When alive, subject to death. The complexion is no longer so clear and bright. The limbs are flabby and wrinkled. The back is bent forward. There is a discernible change in the faculties of the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, and the body. I just love this. You don't hear these these kinds of descriptions. The Buddha and Ananda are getting old. It's like Ananda saying, blessed one, dude, what happened? We... (laughs) We got old. And he's, you know, he's, he's, the Buddha's warming his back in the sun, in the cool season. Ananda so kindly is giving him a back rub, massaging him. You know, these were people. The Buddha had chronic back problems. They got old. The limbs were no longer, just, they were flabby and wrinkled and so forth. I just think it's so beautiful to think of them that, that companionship at that time. And from the moment we take birth, we're heading in one direction, friends. If we take that first breath, we're heading towards that last exhalation. And when death comes, as it certainly will, it will take all of our acquisitions, everything we've put together, including whatever sense of self we might have cobbled together at that time, in that moment. It is our companion. It's walking along with us. This is uh, from the teachings of Don Juan. This is Don Juan speaking to Carlos. Death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you catch a glimpse of it or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. The issue of our death is never pressed far enough. Death is the only wise advisor we have. 
your death will tell you that nothing really matters outside its touch. One of us here has to change and fast. One of us here has to learn that death is the hunter and that it is always to one's left. One of us here has to ask death's advice and drop the cursed pettiness that belong to those that live their lives as if death will never tap them. Think of your death right now. It is at arm's length. It may tap you at any moment. So really you have no time for crappy thoughts and moods. None of us have time for that. He didn't pull any punches. (laughs) Those are strong words. But there's some real deep truth there. You know, we don't know, even the next breath is not guaranteed. Death alone is certain. The time of death is not certain. Given this, what should we do? How shall we live? And so in my view in the way that that this practice lands in my heart one way is that it is a preparation for my death that it's going to be interesting and i want to be there for it i want to be there as that last breath goes out and there's maybe an incredible potential in that moment it's going to be an interesting transition And since we don't know when that's coming, maybe we can practice being ready for it. What if this is your last breath right now? Or your last foggy mind state? Your last grumpy mood? Your last feeling of deep joy and peace? Let's let's just show up for however it is right now with this sense Let me be here with this and hold it with this sense of connection and tender, um, simple presence. Because I don't know, maybe it is the last time I'll be here like this. This breath. This ache in my hip. this ringing in my ears, this peace and joy in my heart, this confusion in my mind. On the morning of his death at the age of 77, in the year 1360, Zen master Kozan Ichikyo wrote this poem, laid down his brush and died sitting upright. Empty-handed I entered the world, barefoot I leave it, my coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. What an expression of equanimity. (laughs) I mentioned uh, a monk that we used to visit. Carol and I used to go a lot to see uh, Myatong Saida. We friends nicknamed him the Happy Saida. He died at the age of 99. And one of the last times uh, we visited him, 
one of the last times he was being carried, he was it was hard for him to walk. It's hilly everywhere there. Hard for him to walk up many flights of stairs to get to the uh, monastery where he lived. And, and so some younger monks were carrying him and they made a, a chair with their hands that he was sitting on and then a third one was behind kind of holding his back up and, and he was... He was we, we were coming down because he wasn't there and we were leaving and then he was coming up. Do you remember, Carol, were you there? And he was... It was like he was flying and his legs were kind of doing this, but they weren't touching the ground and he was laughing and laughing. <laughs> he was so light and so deep. And someone, at, at some point, one of, one of my friends went to visit him and he went and paid respects and he said, I almost died last week. Ah. <laughs> and it's just like, no problem. So in this tradition of early Buddhism, of Theravada Buddhism, the way of the elders, there are these series of four contemplations. They're called the guardian or protection, guardian meditations. And many people um, in, in the Sagaing Hills, it seems like a lot of people, Parekabhasaya, that's his main practice, and many others there, um, and the nuns and the monks, and these are recollecting the qualities of the Buddha. It starts, there's a chant, Titipiso, Bhagava, Harahang, Samma, Sambuddho, Vija, Charana, Sampano, Sugato, Lokavidu, Anuttaro, Purisa, Dhamma, Sarati, Sata, Deva, Manusanang, Buddho, Bhagava. I haven't chanted that in a long time. We used to chant it a lot. I used to chant it 108 times. uh, Very steadily. It calms and quiets the mind sometimes, that kind of thing. So that one, recollecting the qualities of the Buddha, metta, is one of these practices. The uh, practice of uh, contemplation of the 32 parts of the body is the third, and then recollection of the inevitability of death. And that might seem kind of odd. Why would recollecting death be seen as a guardian meditation? I mean, metta might sound, we might like the idea of metta as our guardian or maybe recollecting the qualities of the Buddha, our hearts might say, oh, that sounds kind of good, but why would I want to have thinking about my mortality? Why would that be a protection? No. How could this protect us? Maybe, maybe they made a mistake in the translations or the Buddha was, made a mistake that day. <laughs> we don't really maybe see it. And there may be times, depending on our circumstances, the conditions in our life, when, when this kind of contemplation is not a good idea. When it's not the right time. We need to be careful in this regard. What's timely and truly useful. Because the point of this kind of reflection is not to make us feel bad or, or create a sense of resignation or powerlessness in the face of the inevitable. 
So we have to take care that these kinds of contemplations don't lead us to collapse inwardly in some way. There are times when it's not a good idea. Hear, hear me when I say this. But often we may fear that this kind of reflection will be depressing, but often we find that the opposite is true and that it actually the mind uh, lightens up and becomes quite joyful. Because if we're lifting, living with the unacknowledged or unexamined fear of aging, infirmity, death, it can rob us of a lot of vitality and we can be trying so hard to survive that we're not actually living. But by coming in careful way, face to face with our, our fears, we can start to undo our conditioning, to see this for what it is and we can release this and feel lighter, more ease. This is from a Thai forest master, Ajahn Lee Damadaro. Aging, illness, and death are treasures for those who understand them. They're noble truths, noble treasures. If they were people, I'd bow down to their feet every day. Can we see these as noble treasures, as allies on our path, walking the path to freedom? This kind of retreat, one of the things we notice is it uh, it opens us to seeing our deep habits of mind, doesn't it? All our ideas and views about who we are in our life and the nature of reality. And, and we want to see it all, but sometimes it's not easy. But in a way, we're, we're here to be a bit uncomfortable. We're not here to learn advanced techniques for avoiding unpleasantness. <laughs> <laughs> or to get better at suppression or denial. We want to see everything. We want to see our fears become intimate with them, with worry, with desperation, with longing. Because it's only by seeing these things and really understanding them that we can uh, see how the mind at times is in bondage to them and we can find our way to freedom. So reflecting on our own mortality, this contemplation, this guardian meditation, reflecting on death the inevitability of death. I am going to die. Can be powerful if we do it carefully. It's as if we're placing a powerful kind of medicine into our hearts. A medicine for healing and for awakening. We put it into our heart. We place it here into the retreat. And we let it do its work. And just bringing those words to mind. We don't then have to chew on that. We just bring that into the heart. This is the reality of things. I will die at some point. There will be that last breath, that last exhalation. I was teaching with uh, Brian Lesage, who will be one of the teachers for that. Uh, second six weeks of this three-month retreat. And uh, he spoke about um, an understanding that 
really struck me. It landed in my heart in a really powerful way. And he said I could uh, share this since um, I asked him. And he was reflecting, since we are going to die, maybe soon, we don't have enough time to hurry and rush. We don't have enough time to be tense and tight, to lean on the moment. And I was reflecting on this and I thought, I I added to it in my own uh, response in my heart. I thought, we don't have, not only don't we have enough time to get in a hurry, (laughs) we don't have time to start a war with our own hearts and minds. Can you feel the deep truth of this? We don't have time to go rushing around trying to get something. You know, it sounds kind of counterintuitive. You know, if, if death is certain, but the time of death is not certain, isn't, we got to get going. There's no time to waste. But life is too short to go rushing around and hurrying. There's only enough time to slow down and actually meet each moment, to actually be here. There's not time to start a war with our own mind, but there is time for love and for compassion. So the reflection, if we do it carefully on the inevitability of our death, our own mortality, it clarifies things. It it clears things up (laughs) just in that moment. It brings us right here, right now, if we do it carefully, properly, It's a powerful tool for establishing mindfulness because it reminds us all we have is this moment right here, right now, this one, right now, and now this one. You could say that by reflecting on the inevitability of, of our own death, we're learning how to live. And we can examine our life, what's worth doing, what matters, It doesn't mean we start rushing around. We don't have time for that. And we connect to the preciousness, the beauty, the fragility of life, but not out of desperation or fear, but out of a deep appreciation and a a desire to really be here for it. This is from uh, Crowfoot, who was a Blackfoot warrior, speaker, orator. A little while and I will be gone from among you, when I cannot tell. From nowhere we came, into nowhere we go. What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the winter time. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. Reflecting on our own mortality also can bring us... um, face to face with some of the ideas and, and views that we have about what it is to live and what it is to die. And how do we measure the value of a life? Its sense of fullness, completeness, fulfillment. How do we measure that? How do we look in your own mind and heart? Is it by how long it is? 
certain number of years and it's okay to die after some number of them have gone by. How much stuff we've gotten or how many experiences we've managed to have. I'm going to share a, some, a little story from the time of uh, near the end of, of uh, the life of Henry David Thoreau. He died of tuberculosis pretty young. And this was written by one of his friends. Henry was never affected, never reached by his illness. Very often I heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever. This was when he was near death in his sickbed. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health, the mind always conforming to the condition of the body. The thought of death, he said, could not begin to trouble him. During his long illness, I never heard a murmur escape him or the slightest wish expressed to remain with us. His perfect contentment was truly wonderful. Some of his more orthodox friends and relatives tried to prepare him for death with little satisfaction to themselves. When his aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, he answered, I did not know we had ever quarreled, aunt. (laughs) He died at the age of 44 which at that time was older, you could say, than 44 now. But still, he was young. Did he die too soon? Was his life incomplete? Unfulfilled? A number of years ago now, I was uh, on retreat during the two-month retreat at Spirit Rock in the wintertime. They do a a similar kind of retreat to this for two one-month retreats back to back. And I was there for both of them. And uh, I like to, I don't know if I like to, I wake up very early when I'm on retreat, like some of you. And, and uh, that's my favorite time in those unscheduled hours in the early, early morning. And uh, I had been sitting for quite a while and then I was doing some walking meditation just as dawn was breaking in uh, one of the walking rooms. It was a cold, wet day. And I was walking and I looked into my mind and I saw concentration, equanimity, and faith. And I thought, oh, this would be a really good time to die. (laughs) Right now. (laughs) I I reported it to Carol, actually, and she said she would kill me if I died because (laughs) because, uh, she would have to find someone to replace me on some teaching commitments. (laughs) (laughs) But what if I had died? I mean, my partner would not have been happy. It would have been some trouble and the yogi who found the corpse might have felt unhappy for a little while. But, you know, so it would have been a little bit of trouble, but not that bad. You know, would it have been too soon? Would it have been tragic? Would my life have been incomplete? What if you were to die right now listening to this talk? sitting with a quiet, open mind. Would it be a tragedy? Would your life be incomplete? 
And I'm not saying yes or no to that question. And some deaths are tragic and untimely. In my view, any life lost in a senseless, unnecessary war is tragic. Many of us have stories of lives that have been cut off too soon. And their grief and the sorrow we feel is deep and real and difficult to bear and needs to be held tenderly and carefully and honored. This is real. And this reflection I'm offering tonight is in no way meant to trivialize the reality of these things, diminish the sorrow and grief that we do feel at times. We all feel. But it is worth looking at our attitudes in this area. What views are we holding on to that lead to suffering, that lead to us not actually fully living? Are there notions and ideas that we uh, hold on to that, that bear examination? So these kinds of reflections, the reflection on our own inevitable journey towards aging, illness at some point of some kind, decline at least, and eventually to death, these heavenly messengers, and and reflect on them carefully, and in a way that's real and personal for each of us in that time, in that moment, they can be a powerful support. They can be real allies for us as we walk this path. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. If the Dhamma is to be more than the bland, humdrum background of a comfortable life, if it is to become the inspiring, sometimes grating voice that steers us onto the great path of awakening, we must ourselves emulate the Bodhisattva in his process of maturation. We must join him on that journey outside the palace walls, the walls of our own self-assuring preconceptions, and see for ourselves the divine messengers we so often miss because our eyes are fixed on more important things. That's in quotes. That is on our mundane preoccupations and goals. And so this may be a good place to start being open and honest about these truths. It might wake us up a bit, but Bhikkhu Bodhi suggests that may not be enough for these messengers to get their message across. He suggests that we see them as messengers, as envoys from the far shore, from beyond, who point to a radical shift of view and understanding. And so as divine heavenly messengers, the truths of aging, illness, and death. They lead us to an awareness of life's precious, fragile nature, the inherent vulnerability that's threaded through our existence, the very fabric of our lives. It's woven into it. And, and in this way, there these open windows onto the first noble truth this unreliability that is to be understood. And so they can uh, really catalyze our practice. They can lead us in the direction of a profound internal transformation, I think. They really can help clarify so much, clarify our priorities, 
Help us bring what we really value to the forefront of our minds and hearts. And give weight and priority to what really matters, what really counts. What will we remember as having been worth our time, as having been worth doing, have to have done when we come to the end of our lives? And so they can send us out of our comfort zones into unfamiliar terrain to really seek out a solution to these fundamental existential truths, this existential plight, you could say. So the final understanding here, the words of the Dhamma, you could say, are not surrender to the inevitable or an instruction to stoically embrace uh, aging sickness of death to to take that on with some kind of stoicism in the heart or to to start racing around in some kind of panic when we think of these things. There is this wake-up call. Their announcement, the house is on fire. Don't overlook that. But the ultimate message is one of joy, release of freedom. So if we look at these messengers directly, carefully, without embarrassment, without fear, and we see over time their, their, their faces undergo a, what we could think of as a, a transformation, a change. And they change eventually into the face of the Buddha with a serene smile, simple smile, like on this image here, and the Buddha Rupa behind me. And so they, they appear, the divine messengers that are sitting with us here tonight. They, their, their message is the good news of liberation. Their fingers, they're pointing there, look there, your true home pointing at our own heart, our own mind, pointing to the heart's uh, sure release, pointing to peace. So let's just sit quietly now for a couple of minutes. So I offer these words for your reflection. If there's something that feels resonant, that feels like it might uh, be useful, that lands in your heart, let that be there. If it didn't, let it go. I want to thank Dawn uh, for the beautiful chanting. Um, Such a gift. 
Thank you for that, for being part of this, uh, my talk this evening. I want to thank you all for your practice. And uh, I wish you every possible blessing. And we have time, as always, for uh, whatever you want to do. Some of that good old walking meditation. And uh, please be welcome for chanting. We'll, we'll do some sort of chanting tonight at nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.